Well, good morning, everyone, again. Uh, things are a little different here, as, as you can see, um, but I hope you will bear with me. So a few days ago, I was watching a new season of Narcos, Mexico on Netflix. It's an absolutely brilliant show where they reproduce the events of the war on drugs in Mexico. And although there are some scenes that are entirely fictional, uh, there are certain events that actually transpired in actual history uh, during the 90s. And in one episode, in a gang shootout that went wrong, uh, the Archbishop of Guadalajara, Cardinal Posadas, he was shot dead by the Tijuana cartel after they mistaken him uh, to be the boss of a rival gang since he drove the same car as the boss from the Sinaloa cartel. And for, for some of us who might actually remember seeing this on the TV or hearing this on the radio. And as a result of this, public outrage ensued. Uh, a holy man was shot dead in an airport as drug cartels fought for power. Uh, the government, for years, did nothing about it. They turned a blind eye, uh, they accepted bribes, and some prominent men in political power even worked with the drug cartels in creating new business opportunities to traffic cocaine here into the States. And all of this led to public demonstrations as people wanted change. Uh, Catholics and Christians alike asked this one simple question. Where is the God of justice? Why does God allow the wicked to prosper? And this is a question that is actually asked throughout scripture. Job, he asks before God, why do the wicked live on growing old and increasing in power? While the psalmist in Psalm 73 says, I envied the arrogance when I saw the prosperity of the wicked they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. And likewise, during the pandemic, CEOs of large companies were able to prosper more than ever, some through legitimate means, of course, while others through a little more questionable strategies. And all this happened while families struggled, while families struggled to put food on the table, uh, property was bought up left and right while Americans worried about when the rent moratorium would come to an end. And so surely this cannot go on. Surely there must be a God of justice. And today, as we continue on in the Advent sermon series, in those days, uh, we see that as the prophet Malachi witnesses the same injustices throughout Judah, God gives him a new vision and a new promise of justice. God breathed a new word to Malachi as he tells Judah a new prophecy. So join with me as we read Malachi chapter 3, uh, verses 1 to 7. And it reads, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner 
and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness, and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in during the former years. So I will come to put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppose the widows and the fatherless and deprive the foreigners among you of justice, but they do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? And for today, I want to focus on three will statements. And our first will statement today is that God will judge. I'm going to jump the gun a little bit and come to the first verse uh, at the end of the sermon, uh, but I want to take a closer look at verses 2 to 5. And the first thing we see when the Lord returns is that some sort of separation is going to happen. And God uses the imagery of fire and soap to show the people of Israel what his return would look like. And for those of us who might have been on too late of a midnight YouTube binge uh, where you end up watching random videos, uh, you might have come across videos of how swords are made. And so how are, how, how are swords made? Well, they all start out with a lump of rock. Um, hopefully we'll, we'll see it on the slide soon. They all start off as this lump of rock. Now, this isn't any ordinary uh, piece of rock because in this rock actually contains iron. But the question is, well, how do we get the iron out of this rock? And so what blacksmiths would do is they would put this piece of rock into a furnace set at over 2,000 degrees, hotter than your conventional oven, um, and it would literally melt away everything but the iron. And so from this impure rock filled with all sorts of junk, you end up with iron that can be used for making tools or swords. Uh, in fact, cast iron pans are still made the same way even till this day. But what is the point of this? The point that God makes to Malachi is that although the God we love is a loving God, is a merciful God, he is still the God of justice. And God promises to Malachi and to an extent to us as well that when he returns, God will separate the people who are righteous from those who are not, much like how a blacksmith would use intense heat to separate junk from pure iron. And we see the same theme in the other imagery that God uses of soap, which removes the dirt and removes the stains from a pure piece of cloth. So who exactly are these unrighteous people that Malachi is condemning. In verse five, we see that Malachi presents to us seven examples. Malachi starts off the list with sorcerers, who were people who would attempt to tell the future uh, through different means. Uh, next, Malachi lists out adulterers, 
and perjurers, right? Those who are unfaithful to their spouse or those who lie under oath. Afterwards, he lists people who defraud their workers, those who oppress the widows, the fatherless, and the foreigners, uh, which is actually a biblical catchphrase for all who are needy in society. And finally, he characterizes those who do not fear the Lord. And the thing about this list is it could obviously be much longer, right? Uh, scholars, they, they ask all sorts of questions. And one question they ask is, well, why did Malachi just stop at seven sins, right? Why not eight? Why not nine? Um, and the general consensus for why Malachi stopped at seven is because seven is more than enough proof that Israel has fallen short of God's command for them to be holy as he is holy. Malachi, he could have listed a hundred reasons, 200 reasons, but seven is more than enough proof that the people of Judah are not living lives that were holy in God's eyes. And for us, as we look at this list, uh, there might be a sense of relief, as hopefully none of us have seen a sorcerer lately uh, to divine the future, or nor have we lied under the oath. But beneath each sin that Malachi lists, there is a deeper truth. Those who saw sorcerers to divine the future were individuals who fundamentally did not trust in God's plan or God's timing in their lives. Those who were adulterers and perjurers broke the Ten Commandments that God has given. Those who defrauded the workers were greedy and selfish. Those who oppressed the needy are also those who turn a blind eye to those who are suffering in our society. And those who do not fear God are those who do not respect who he is, that he indeed is judge. And when I look at what's underneath the surface of each sin, I very quickly recognize that I have fallen short in every respect. There are times where I lose trust in God's providence. There are times where I violate the Ten Commandments. There are times where I am selfish and greedy. There are times where I turn a blind eye to the needy. And every time I sin, I fail to give God the respect he deserves, and therefore I too fail to fear the Lord. And when seen this way, when the Lord asks us in verse 2, who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? I know that I stand convicted. Like impure metal or like dirt on clothes, I know that I belong to the unrighteous, that by nature I am unclean and unholy. I think back to one of Heidi Jensen's testimony on the day that the youths were baptized, uh, where she recounts a time where she would pray for the Lord to return, only to realize that that day is actually not an entirely pleasant day. Because on the day where the Lord returns, it's a day of division, where those who sin against humanity and sin against God are separated from those who are righteous and holy. And I know that apart from Christ, I stand with the unrighteous. I understand that my request for justice will only condemn myself because I myself have been unjust. And so the Lord asks and I respond, Lord, 
I cannot endure the day of your coming. I cannot stand under the weight of my own sin. My own lips condemn me, for I am a man of unclean lips and a man of unclean hearts. And so how is there hope for me? How is there hope for us? Fortunately, Micah does not end the prophecy at verse 5, but as he moves on into verse 6 to 7, he presents to us our second will statement today, that God will forgive. We see that after the Lord confronts Judah of their sin, God actually gives a very interesting response. Often as humans, we tend to treat others the way that we would like to be treated, right? That's, after all, the golden rule that Jesus teaches us, right? Do to others what you would have them do to you. But the thing is, it also works in reverse, doesn't it? Do harm to others as they have done harm to you. Show hate to others as they have shown hate to you. And unfortunately, this is how most relationships change and come to an end. A little bit of miscommunication here, a little bit of miscommunication there, and suddenly, every word that comes from our friends and our family feels like an attack on us. Our hearts quickly change from love to anger, and we begin to do to others what we believe that they have done to us. Our human hearts are fickle. We change at a dime, and in my short lifetime, I have gained and lost friends in an instant. Bitter hostilities between family members develop in just a moment, and forgiveness becomes impossible for a lifetime. But the Lord tells Malachi in verse 6 that he's nothing like we are. He's not fickle like we are. The Lord tells Malachi that I, the Lord, do not change. And so you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and, not, and have not kept them. In the previous chapter, the Lord actually tells the people of Judah that they have been unfaithful to the Lord, that they have chased after idols and, quote-unquote, married them. And yet, the Lord's heart does not change. The people of Judah have not respected the Lord, and yet the Lord's heart does not change. The Lord brings the people of Judah out of exile and back into the land he promised, and despite this, they continue to sin, but the Lord's heart does not change. We often talk of God's everlasting love. And here we see it in full display for all to see, because his love for us never changes, and therefore we are not destroyed. Though we recognize and realize that our hearts move away from God daily, his love for us endures, and because his love endures, we are eternally forgiven at every moment. In receiving such love and such mercy, how do we as sinners, how do we respond? We respond by returning to him. 
Malachi ends verse 7 by telling us to return to me and I will return to you. But the obvious question is, how? How do we return to the Lord when we have been so unfaithful? In fact, that is actually how Malachi ends verse 7 when he asks, but you ask, how are we to return? And this question brings us to our final will statement today, that God will return. We see in verse 1 that God will return by sending us two people. Uh, The first person that God will send is the one who will prepare the way uh, for the Lord. And for us as Christians, uh, this comes to us as no surprise as to who this person is, since we kind of know how the story ends. Uh, We know that before the return of Christ, God sent John the Baptist to prepare the way for the Lord. We know from the accounts in Mark 1 that John the Baptist called the people of Jerusalem to two things. John called them first to repent of their sins and second to receive the baptism of repentance. And we as Christians, we are called to do the same. Before we return to the Lord, we must first acknowledge our wrongs. We must first acknowledge our sins before God, but we are also to confess our sins to those whom we have hurt. We are called to confess to God and to those made in the image of God. And when we do so, you'll quickly find out how painful it is. It hurts to admit that we are wrong. It hurts our pride to be vulnerable and to put ourselves in the mercy of others and also in the mercy of God. But when we do so, we know that this pain is like the fire that purifies rocks of iron. We know that this feeling of vulnerableness and humility is like a scorching heat that melts away all that is unholy within us. It is like the launderer's soap which is used to wash dirt away from clothes. And when we confess our sins, we too know that our sins are washed away, forever forgotten by the Lord. And we are able to present ourselves to him with a clean heart and with a clean mind. And when we're able to return to God with such a clean heart and mind, our relationship with God is restored. And for the Judahites living in that time, it meant that God finally returned to them. Christ, the eternal Son of God, comes to them and ministers to them. The Messiah, whom they have been desiring and longing for, arrives to tell them that the kingdom of God has returned. A kingdom ruled by a perfectly just God, a kingdom ruled by a perfectly loving God, and a kingdom ruled by a God who is always more than willing to forgive. Why? For he does not change. And for us as Christians, as we celebrate the Advent season, we celebrate not only the fact that Christ came into this world 2,000 years ago, but we also look forward. We look forward to the time when Christ will return. God has kept his promise to us in the past, and he will keep it again in the future for the Lord does not change. He keeps his words, and his words alone are reliable. And so as we return back 
to one of the questions we started off with in the beginning of the sermon, where is the God of justice? The God of justice came. He came as a humble servant. He came as a boy born in a manger and died a criminal's death so that we can be forgiven. The justice that God desired was fulfilled in Christ, and we who are baptized in him receive Christ's righteousness. But from now until he returns, we know that there will still be injustice, that there will still be inequality in our world. But we wait knowing that Christ will return again. The kingdom of God is already here in our midst like a mustard seed, but will one day bloom into a large tree where all nations, all people, all ethnic groups can gather together and to worship the Lord our God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we know that you are unchanging. We know that you are the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. We know that you are eternally loving, eternally merciful, and eternally just. And so as we see the injustice done to us in our personal lives, and we see the injustice done throughout our society and our world, we pray, Lord, that you will act, that you will purify and clean us, that you will convict us of our sins so that we may repent and return back to you, God. And from now until the day you return, we humbly pray to let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven.